0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW.
1: I'd forgotten the heat. It were only the heat. You know, I lived here until I was fourteen. Jerusalem was my home. My father was governor under. Yes, I know. Father's well remembered. Fine governor. If there can be such a thing in this forsaken land. If you want to rise, Sextus, do the difficult. I asked to be sent here. I think you'll find the people changed since you were a boy. In what way? Oh, won't pay their taxes, an irrational resentment of Rome. There's nothing new in all that. And then there's religion. I tell you they're drunk with religion. They smash the statues of our gods, even those of the emperor punish them.
2: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, June 4th, 2009. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will be with you from now till noon. No, no, not right, wing. Just Right.
0: Colour it to black and white Under the bedclothes clothes everything will be
2: And welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call if you want to join in on the conversation today. And today's subject and theme from front to end is going to be all about taxes and taxation. Second half of the program, we're going to be looking at the history of taxation, going back to the Roman Empire, believe it or not, with a little help from Hollywood and a few history books, should be an interesting take. But first, on the first half of the show, and for the first half of the show, I am joined on the line by none other than federal director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, Kevin Godet. Are you there, Kevin? Yes, I am. Good morning. Well, welcome to London. I know you're no stranger to this market, for sure. Yes,
0: I did uh, graduate from uh, Western myself.
2: And, uh, well, what I was meaning, I hear you on the radio all the time, but I didn't know you were at Western here.
0: Yeah, I did my MBA there and graduated in uh, 2000.
2: Excellent. Well, I'm sitting in the UCC building, if you know where that is. <laughs> yep. And um, well, you must be a busy person these days. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh this doesn't seem to be any end of areas that we could discuss in terms of taxes. I've got let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, just to just for starters. What's the big thing on your mind these days? What 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 are or even or maybe from the point of view of what you're hearing mostly from the public, what would they be mostly interested in?
0: Sure. Well the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, we're a national non profit, nonpartisan organization and our is lower taxes, less waste and more accountable government. So not surprisingly, we run a bit, uh, we get busier counter-cyclical to the economy. So when the economy slows and governments run big deficits and people are having trouble making ends meet, that's when we get busier because that's when people get more agitated by governments spending more, increasing taxes and wasting taxpayers' money.
2: Well, I certainly checked your website out there at www.taxpayer.com. And you guys have an archive there that is just amazing.
0: We have, uh, we've been around since 1991, mm-hmm. um, so we're, we're, we're pushing towards our 20th anniversary. Um, and th- the fact is that right now, with the federal government having announced last week uh, a deficit now exceeding $50 billion, in great part contributed by no less than $15 billion of taxpayer money, all of which is borrowed to subsidize Chrysler and General Motors alone, um, those are two of the, well, as the first question was, what's on our mind? Well, the, the two largest issues of interest to our supporters, and clogging my email box and my voicemail, just are the $15 billion to big auto and a growing and burgeoning long-term federal deficit. Well,
2: you, you know, the big the big thing to me that's a mystery about the whole GM and Chrysler auto bailout, there seems to be a huge rift between the public and their representatives in government on this one. Am I missing the boat on this? Because when I hear talk shows, when I hear uh, people talking to me, and not just who, people who might be a member of your group or whatever, um, nine out of ten of them seem to think this is a bad idea. They don't support it. They see the the illogic of it, and yet our so-called democratic governments are going ahead with this anyway who who do they represent the taxpayer do they represent the businesses I, it makes me wonder
0: i don't know about 9 out of 10 well I'm you know i are. get
2: hyperbolic every once in a while no i understand
0: but, but i i do <laughs> under, uh, i i do see polls and and mm-hmm. polls show between 35 and 50% depending on any given week let's call it in the low 40s just to be you know pick the the middle um, over forty percent of the population seems to repeatedly poll in opposition to governments bailing out big auto uh, or bailouts in general, and in particular to big auto. So it's hard to understand with a population forty percent of which oppose these approaches to government spending.
2: Well, maybe it's that hard- does. Maybe that is understandable. Wouldn't that mean sixty percent are in favor?
0: Uh, well, n- no. No forty forty percent oppose and then you'll get the the remaining sixty are split between between accepting, begrudging and, and, and fervent support of it. Oh, I see. Um, so it's in that context though that with forty percent clearly opposed, it's hard to understand why there is not a single voice. I mean, forget two or three or a whole political party, there's not a single federal politician that stood up publicly and stated that they oppose the government's approach to this type of spending nobody in the block NDP liberals or the government caucus have uh, expressed a single criticism or opposition to the government putting this much borrowed money into these companies
2: well of course they were all in favor of that themselves weren't they I mean, isn't there a little bit of hypocrisy here now, especially on the part of the Liberals screaming uh, before the election, spend, 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 and now uh, screaming about the government's deficit, although they're not complaining about the spending. Maybe what they're telling us is that they would rather tax us more.
0: Well, I think there's enough hypocrisy to go around here, <laughs> Start, starting starting with the, the Prime Minister and the government. I mean, there was this Prime Minister uh, used to be a Reform Party member of Parliament. Um, I used to work for, for that party uh, on the Hill and, and, and worked beside him, um, not as an MP, but as a staffer. And back then, and even recently in 04, the Prime Minister made very clear comments, he was leader of the opposition at the time, um, in opposition to corporate subsidies of this kind, to corporate bailouts of this kind, to regional development programs. And since then, uh, he would argue, because the devil made him do it, the opposition made him do it, he's, he's leapt in two feet first into the river of corporate bailouts. Um, so that's where his hypocrisy probably lies. Um, and then importantly, of course, Mr. Ignatchev is sucking and blowing at the same time. Where, on one hand, he's decrying Minister Flaherty for announcing the largest deficit in the history of the country at over fifty billion dollars, and yet at the same time, on the other side of his mouth, he's asking the government to actually spend even more uh, for employment insurance, for example, just to pick one example. Um, so there's enough hypocrisy there, and. I mean, the, 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 the block of equality it probably almost goes without saying their hypocrisy, where they
2: <laughs> de- decry
0: the existence of, of their position in Canada and yet beg us for more money at the same time. So there's there's plenty of that to go around at the federal level.
2: No kidding. We're on the line with Kevin Goodett of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation 519-661-3600 if you have any questions or want to join in on the conversation. Kevin, warranties and pensions seem to be a big issue behind the car collapse and, and the whole auto industry. And it seems to me, you know, aren't they really, aren't those issues almost about corporate socialism and security? A- and, and it's really, why wouldn't, for example, if they want to spur sales of cars, why not abandon the warranty, sell the cars cheaper, and let people, you know, caveat emptor out there, hope you, you know, if you have a problem, you pay for it yourself, you take a risk. Uh, wouldn't that move a lot of cars <coughs> instead of always having this security blanket about everything?
1: Well, uh, I
0: guess once we start getting into this level of detail regarding how car companies manage themselves, it makes it evidently clear why I think taxpayers ought to be not put in the position of being shareholders. Um, I don't believe that I or you or or the next bear ought to become an expert in how car companies ought to manage themselves. In an ideal world, the the free market would figure itself out how to do that. Ford seems to not require a public bailout today. Uh, Neither does Honda Canada or Toyota Canada, for example. I suppose we could raise any number of questions as to how companies could make changes. You know, at the end of the day, I would argue that uh, organized labor, uh, white-collar workers and executives uh, in Chrysler and General Motors colluded for decades to overpay themselves, to overpay suppliers, to have too many employees, to build cars that not enough people were willing to pay enough money to buy. Um, And that caused the company to be unprofitable, unsustainable, and uncompetitive. And as a result, taxpayers now are being asked to pay for their failure to properly manage their companies. Um, and I think it's especially ironic that if you're a taxpayer, uh, a worker at down the street of of uh, these companies, working for a competitor like Toyota or or Honda or Ford in Canada, that your tax dollars are going to go to the government to be turned over to GM and Chrysler whose job it is to create cars to put you out of business. Well, you that's be- the absurd part of this. You
2: just beat me to my next question, because that's exactly the way I see the logic, is as soon as you've got the government bailing out one company, they're hurting the competition. And and, and, and not just in taxes, I don't think. I think they're also pulling away potential labor from those companies, you know, and generally driving prices up. Is that maybe what they're trying to do? <laughs> Well, I mean,
0: at the end of the day, for these companies to survive, the business model is not really complicated at a very high level. You need to sell enough cars to generate enough revenue uh, at a level higher than those cars cost to produce. Uh, That's the margin equation. You know, revenue minus cost equals profit. Um, and, And they're not doing it. And when governments take taxpayer money and give it to these companies, it allows those executives to make decisions that prolong its failure to make the necessary hard decisions to become profitable, um, other companies are able to do it. Um, you, you mentioned the pension issue, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, The the, the fact just is that 70% of Canadians don't have any pension plan, let alone a lucrative one. So for this company, these companies to have, have created pension plans and pension plan obligations to their workers that are so lucrative that it's crippling and bankrupting the company, it seems absurd to the 70% of Canadians who don't have a pension plan to have to pay taxes uh, to have to save money to prepare for their own pension plan, to pay taxes into the Canada Pension Plan for their own retirement, and then also to have their taxes go to pay for these lucrative pensions, they end up paying three times for, for, well, for pensions, and, and one of those pension plans isn't theirs and is extraordinarily lucrative in the first place.
2: Well, it's funny you say that. So, you know, Buzz Hargrove was, Hargrove was in the news earlier this week actually speaking to that very issue that you just raised. And I heard him this past Tuesday saying that there's two major problems that the auto industry faces. And the first one was, of course, imports and what he kept ca- calling unfair trade. But the second one was the one that you just addressed, and that was he said... "Now he, uh, I, It sounds like he's trying to overcome the problem you just raised, that most of us don't have pensions, by saying that what we need, quote, is pensions to protect all workers, well, not just a select few. That, that, so
0: that is exactly what the CAW has been saying. Um, first, of all, let me talk about the fair, the so-called fair trade issue. they're not talking about imports when they're talking fair trade. they're actually talking about exports uh, They actually have a fair comment and a genuine concern that foreign markets um, aren't uh, appropriately and sufficiently open to Canadian and, Nor- and north American made vehicles. And there are questions about why that's the case and, and, and it's a good point for Canadian and u s uh, secretaries and Canadian ministers to be pushing the open greater openness in foreign markets, but to suggest that foreign market, opening foreign markets is going to be the panacea and savior of the North American car industry is really just um, an effort at the uh, at the CAW and those auto companies sure. to change the channel. Because it, it isn't. It's not clear that we'll be able to sell those cars profitably in those markets. And even if we did, it's not clear that we'd be able to compete in a comp- cost-competitive manner. Um, but with respect to the, the, the pension the issues, yeah. for the, for them to suggest, for anyone to suggest that the the response to taxpayers having to pay for lucrative CAW pensions is, is silly because we already have a Canada Pension Plan. And for them to suggest that the only response is to make the Canada Pension Plan as equally lucrative as is a CAW pension plan, uh, I can't even begin to imagine how much of a tax increase that well. would be on Canada Pension Plan premiums, which were already 5% for an employee and 5% for an employer. They're substantial payroll taxes that anybody who works realizes they pay.
2: Well, I think most people's pension plans is called uh, work until the day you die. I don't know. Kevin, we're going to take a quick break for about two minutes, two and a half minutes. Why don't to listen in on this? There's, uh, first, we're going to take a break for a quick smile first. But coming back on the other side, we're going to hear a, a two-minute excerpt from um, actually the f- past federal election. and in, in, in this excerpt, you're going to hear uh, Elizabeth May, uh, Jack Layton, and Stephen Harper. And when we come back, I've got a couple of questions to ask you about what they say, okay? Okay. We'll be back on the other side of this break.
1: Humphrey, we have got to slim down the civil service. How many people have we got in this department? Uh, This department? Oh, very small. Small? How small? Oh, I don't know. Um, Two thousand? Three thousand? Um... About 23,000, I think, Minister. 23,000? In the Department for Administrative Affairs, 23,000 people just administering other administrators? Mm. We'll have to do a time and motion study, see who we can get rid of. We did one of those last year, Minister. And? It transpired we needed another 500 people. <laughs>
3: I think it's important to note that the international economic community looking at Canada, the OECD report actually recommends that the health of Canada's economy would be improved if we reduce the taxes on income and payroll and put them on carbon instead. That's an international recommendation from other countries that have done the same. It's not economically disastrous, it's a smart economic thing to do. Mr. Layton and Mr. Decept. Mr. Harper, you're wrong to say that you're not following the course of action that we've seen in the States. In fact, what you've proposed is large corporate tax cuts, and you're proposing $50 billion more. This is precisely the direction that has led the U.S. to have the problem that it's facing. And what do you tell Canadians? Everything is fine about the economy. The economy is not fine, and if you talk to Canadians today, that's what they'll tell you. Now, either you don't care or you're incompetent. Which is it? Well, they, he, he deserves a chance to respond All to that right. before I get to you, Mr. Doucette. Yeah, go go ahead. ahead. Let me answer this. We identified, everybody knew about this financial crisis in August 2007. That's why be, we began acting the fall of last year to bring forward a tax reduction package that would help consumers, help business, help families. Now, Jack, you say it's $50 billion tax cut for business. That's true. I don't dispute that. But it was a $200 billion tax cut package, three-quarters of that was for families, was for small business, was for individuals. But why do for banks for and oil and companies need but that but kind well, of let, help right let now let me, when me, families are suffering? No, but let, let, me talk, let me talk about it. That's important because you said one of the things you pointed out last night that is a, is a valid point is that what Canadians are worried about right now is not the job situation, not losing their home like in the U.S., what they're worried about is they see the stock market problems. We see big, big drops in the stock market in the energy sector, in the commodity sector, some of the, the financial sector. the opposition what the opposition proposes. Gentlemen, I have to manage have the time.
0: Mr. Duceppe, please.
2: Well, we didn't stick around to hear from Mr. Duceppe. Did you hear all of that, Kevin? I did indeed. Oh. I, I remember hearing it the first time. You do now. Is it just a coincidence that the fifty billion dollar deficit we're facing now happens to match the corporate tax cuts that Jack Layton was talking about with Mr. Harper? <laughs>
0: Uh, I think that is a coincidence, um, you know, and, I'm not, and I'm not sure the number is, is, is accurate either. Um, well, now
2: Harper there said, he, he retorted by saying that, that his government actually cut $200 billion. Was that actually true? Did we get a tax cut from Stephen Harper? Because uh, 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 the average taxpayer isn't noticing these tax cuts. Where are they going?
0: well uh... i'm in a peculiar position of being asked to defend (laughs) the the tax cutting initiatives of the federal government but 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 i'm I'm happy to do that because i'm aware of what they've done Now, the federal government on the business side has in fact uh, the harper government has undertaken initiatives to reduce the corporate uh, income tax rate quite substantially to try and make it more competitive internationally and 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 that's a good move that's a good thing Um, do we see that directly no that's the type of thing that helps companies be more productive and have more margin and ideally keep more people employed longer um, which is ironic, given the challenges we're already facing in Canada. Um, uh, and on the personal side, they would say uh, Harper would say that look, they they promised to and have under, kept their promise to reduce the GST from seven to six to five percent. And anyone who ever buys any good uh, publicly, um, you know, anytime you 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 go and you buy anything, imagine it's a car or any large item. The, the bigger the item, the more you save in that context, or the less you pay out. And more accurately phrase it. And on the personal front, they've made some some small changes on the low income end and on the middle income tax end. They've lowered the thresholds a bit. So the government has provided, um, I would argue, some fairly broad-based, meaningful tax relief for businesses. A little less on the personal front, but they have made progress.
2: Um, now, what about the spending side? Has there been well, that's, significant uh, that's, the, Im- cuts that's there? the important side of right. the
0: the equation. Is that uh, this government, like its pre- predecessor governments, has increased spending by roughly a compound average growth rate of more than seven percent a year that's twice the inflation and population growth rate combined
2: well then then wouldn't it be more accurate to say that the government has increased spending or or taxes rather they've only deferred them to uh, next year or to a future generation or something like that. that is exactly
0: what uh, deficits are it's deferred taxation it's either the opportunity cost of tax relief or it's an actual tax increase so right now the federal government is borrowing fifteen hundred eighty five dollars Per second this year, that's a big number. It's fifty billion. You know, per second it's fifteen hundred and eighty-five dollars. Um, that's deferred taxation. We call it fiscal child abuse because it's.
2: And that's not the total spending. You're just talking about the deficit,
0: exactly. right? Exactly. Like this, is, this is borrowed <laughs> money. This is on top of all the tax money we send in, which is roughly some two hundred billion dollars. So the government's actually spending two hundred and fifty billion. And it's, you know, th- these numbers get to be so large it's hard to wrap your head around them. You know, when the government we have a campaign out right now in order to highlight the deficit spending of the government. It's debtclock.ca, and people who want to see the visual impact of how fast our federal debt is growing, it's over $468 billion today. It's growing at $1,585 per second, and you can see that clock spinning at uh, debtclock.ca. Um, so when the government's running a deficit of $50 billion, we try to put that in terms that people can wrap their brain around it a little better, so it's... You know, it's 100 new sports stadiums. It's 211 NHL hockey teams. For $50 billion, you could buy 26 uh, new speed shuttles.
2: Kevin, you're freaking me out here. You know, uh, do you get depressed? You get depressed <laughs> doing what you do. I, 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 have to, I, I'm, I don't mean, I know that's not the kind of question you usually get, but, uh, you know, I, I just look at this stuff. I, I'm a bit like you in the sense that it concerns me. I watch the figures, and I just don't see an end to it. Uh, uh, you know, you can win a lot of political battles, And I see that your group has. I know others that have, but it seems that we're all losing the war somehow. And when you're talking about a $1,585 per second increase in the debt, that's not even in spending or in anything else. Isn't that just a train wreck waiting to happen? And and what should we do to protect ourselves? I, I, I don't see how you stop this train.
0: Well, uh, these the trains, like large steamships, like titanics, like anything, you, you, <laughs> either <sink>. just, you, <laughs> either, you either need to sink it or turn it around. Right. And, uh, you know, to give the Canadian Taxpayers Federation a plug, if I can, shamelessly, oh, I'd, I'd say people need to join their voice to ours, that uh, only through turning up the volume of more voices and can politicians w- listen. Um, so no, I saw people, you got
2: over 59,000 voices strong there already according and it's, to your it's, website. Yeah,
0: it's around yeah, yeah. 50, 59, yeah. 60, and it, it's clearly not enough. The politicians aren't hearing us, and the last time we got into this situation federally was was the mid-90s when the Liberals were in power, and Mr. Cratchit and Mr. Martin combined, uh, to, to undertake a, a balancing of the budget. I mean, to be fair, the economy took off globally, and that helped them, but they did reduce spending and curtail spending at least for a couple of years, and uh, we would like to see politicians do that again. To be fair, one of the reasons the Liberals did it back then, though, was International bond rating agencies were down, were threatening to importantly downgrade Canada's Canada's debt, which of course makes it even more expensive to to to, to borrow money. Um, So, So in a sense,
2: the marketplace even takes care of the government in a certain way.
0: Well, exactly, and that's the the government of Ontario, for example. uh, It was stated yesterday that bond rating agencies are considering downgrading Ontario's debt because of the huge uh, debt and deficit that's being racked up by Mr. McGinty and. And the problem with that is it gets into a negative spiral, because when you get downgraded, um, the banks charge you more money to borrow more money, which means you're going to go even more into deficit at the time. Um, And unless somebody really digs in their heels in the sand and reduces the growth rate of spending, uh, yeah, then it could be a train wreck looming.
2: Now, uh, we've only got a couple of minutes left, and uh, what a time to introduce this subject. But right at the beginning of that clip from the last election there, Elizabeth May talks about Carbon carbon taxes. Now, Everybody seems to be against them. Uh, you know, I even see editorials in the National Post against them. And yet, on the other hand, it's as if industry and government is going ahead anyway with this whole carbon tax plan, as if w- its validity is not relevant to the tax plan itself. Like, uh, I don't really see how it has anything to do with the environment. But um, what's your take on that? What's your whole um, feeling about the whole carbon tax situation in a nutshell i'm asking in in, three minutes to
0: in in, in a nutshell we we are proud to call ourselves global warming deniers we don't believe that uh, co2 is a pollutant we don't believe there's uh, appropriate evidence that it's uh, a man-made problem Uh, it's a problem at all let alone whether or not it's man-made and the idea of governments increasing taxes globally to the tune of trillions and trillions of dollars in an effort to stop something that most scientists say that we can't even make any changes to even if we believe there was a problem in the first place is a tremendous waste of money. We'd rather see governments, if they're going to deal with the environment, actually make water clean, make air clean, uh, clean up brown sites. Those are clear, delineatable, identifiable, quantifiable, measurable areas in the environment uh, that the governments I, can actually do. I
2: agree with every word you're saying, and it makes perfect sense to me. Why aren't governments listening? Are, they, are Do they not agree with what you just said and what I think? Uh, do they believe that all this stuff is real? Because I don't really think they do. I think they're just one for the money.
0: Well, I don't think the Harper government generally believes it. I think that they are afraid that enough people in the public believe it, and and uh, that they would rather kowtow to public opinion, even if it's driven by by false research and and, and hysterical claims by the Al Gores of the world, um, in an effort to garner votes. And the, the Harper's political tactic on this has been to reject a direct carbon tax, and to Talk about uh, international carbon trading market, and their way to avoid the problem in the short term is to put the decision off until roughly two thousand fifteen two thousand sixteen and and they 're hoping the public opinion i think they 're hoping that public opinion will change over time so that they can just quietly kill the plan
2: amazing you know I think uh, almost we must be witnessing the collapse of the of the North American empire, let's call it that. I don't know, it, it just frightens me, this whole tax situation. Kevin, we're coming around the bottom of the hour. I want to thank you for being with us today. My pleasure. Hope to have you back again, and maybe we'll talk a little more about this global warming denying stuff, one of my favourite subjects. Happy to do that. <laughs> thank you for joining right. us today. Take care. You too. And that was Kevin Goodet of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, live from his office in the Toronto area. Now, coming up after the break, we're going to go to a break shortly. um, going to go into a history of taxation and see what parallels we might be able to draw in terms of what's happening in our taxes today. And, you know, I, I started doing some research on this and hit the old uh, encyclopedia, looked at uh, some of the books I have on the subject of the history of it, and uh, going back to the Roman Empire and the whole issue of uh, how did Rome actually operate so successfully for so long, and what happened when Rome actually collapsed. Certainly not a subject you can do really a lot of justice to in only a half an hour, but I'm going to try that on the other side of the break. But first, just as we go into the break, we're going to hear a clip from a 2002 um, July broadcast of Michael Corrin Live, and it was a panel discussion with a group of folks there, and among them was uh, Freedom Party leader Paul McKeever and, of course, Michael Corrin, Bernie Taub, and another lawyer whose name escapes me, unfortunately. But they were talking about, and Paul just gave a little bit of a background on, uh, on the history of um, income taxes in Canada. So we're going to listen to that. When we come back on the other side of the break and the ads, we will be talking about the Roman Empire.
4: How oh, that went about, but since then you've got these other three gentlemen on there, and they're touching base on a whole bunch of stuff that's just, I mean, a lot of it makes sense. Uh, I think
0: the problem, I'm, I'm pretty sure, wasn't it the Napoleonic Wars when tax was introduced? Pardon me? It the, was the Napoleonic Wars, taxation was introduced?
4: Was uh, tax uh, y- in Greece. Yeah. yeah. That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. 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 that's in, right. It goes to Canada. And John christian yeah. was Prime yeah, Minister. That's right there. There. <laughs> <laughs> <But> you knew <laughs> <That's> that. <so. laughs> At the federal level, see, what happened was that the Constitution divided all sorts of legal powers. You mm-hmm. can work on the criminal law, you can make laws with respect to the criminal law. You can make laws with respect to education and health. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the provinces got education and health. The federal government got criminal law, military laws. There, um, they also divided the power to to make certain kinds of taxes, and they said, provinces, you can impose a direct tax within the province for provincial purposes, and the federal tax guys, you, the federal government, you can impose any, any anything else. And what happened was, uh, you know, the war came along and the need was there and none of the provinces really complained. Uh, actually, the First World, First World War. In 1917, an emergency income tax was imposed by the federal government. And prior to that, no direct tax, uh, an income tax is a, what's called a direct tax, no direct tax had ever been imposed by the federal government. But what happened was there was a crash in 1929. Uh, there, was a change, there was a philosophical shift economically. Uh, to uh, intervention by by a centralized authority within the countries, and we so so we saw in the United States, Canada, and Britain, um, more authoritarian or more interventionist style governments. And what happened was that the federal government essentially said, "Look, we want to continue imposing a tax." Now they didn't, in my opinion, don't go out to the court and make this argument; you will fail. Okay? But this is on an academic level. I'd like to I'd like to say that I, my opinion is that the federal government continues not to have the jurisdiction to impose an income tax or a GST. Uh, but, but they've done it for so long and they've gotten so far in debt that no court is ever going to tell anybody that that's exactly. okay. G-
0: that's right. Government very rarely limits its own powers. People go into government because they want to govern. taxation is there to, to, to pay for a war. Hey, we can extend it. No one's going to stop us. Thus, there must be a, a word to describe that law. It's not Murphy's law, but they carry on extending and extending. Mm-hmm. Let's take another call. Joanne online. I think there's eight. Hi, Joanne. Hi, how are you? Doing well, thank you.
1: Yes, um... Nero, Emperor. Commander, hail. Come forward. Your proud uncle has been explaining the impetuosity of your devotion to me. It's a joy to be such an inspiration to my commander. My loyalty in my life always, Caesar. My men have been away a long time. They've fought and died for their emperor. They've gladly accepted weeks of forced marches to reach home. They're anxious to see their families, their women. Just as you said, Petronius. such loyalty. Such devotion. You see, Caesar, the delay in my men reaching their homes, it's a question of morale. Didn't you explain in the... Uh, maybe Tigellinus left the reason out of his orders, an oversight Reasons perhaps. Reasons are not given in imperial orders. Oh, Tigulinus, how boorish. How ungrateful. We desire that you wait until you are joined by the legions coming from Africa and Asia, which I understand should be a matter of hours. Tomorrow you will enter Rome in triumph. More and more the people need diversion, these. Or rather, shall we say that this, too, is a question of morale? They demand a spectacle, a look at heroes. Bear with me in this, dear Commander. It is now clear to me, Emperor. Divinity, may I retire with my nephew? We have much to talk over. Naturally. I shall expect you at the feast after the Triumph, Vinicus. We shall try to make it diverting.
2: And welcome back. You're listening to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we'll be with you from now till noon. I'm Bob Metz, and the number to call is 519-661-3600. You know, as you look into the history of taxation, there are only two words that keep arising all the time, and that is war and slavery. That's what taxes are all about. That's what starts them. That's why they exist. That's why they, that we have them in humanity at all. Now, that doesn't make taxes bad in and of themselves. Taxes are a reaction to a bad situation, and that's the fact that there's enough people on this planet who think that they can just steal, kill, start wars to get things without trading for them. And that's basically been the history of mankind and why we have taxes and why we had wars. And since one of the proper functions of government is to protect its citizens from violent attack, robbery and harm, it's a sad fact of history that governments which overtax invariably become the criminal that they were originally constituted to protect us from. Isabel Patterson in her book The God of the Machine in 1943 pointed out that quote nations are not powerful because they possess wide lands, safe ports, large navies, huge armies, fortifications, stores, money, or credit. They acquire those advantages because they are, are powerful having devised on correct principles the political structure which allows the flow of energy to take its course. And she's talking about human energy in that situation. So one of my best sources that I went to uh, in terms of the whole story of taxation, there's, an, there's a book with also a follow-up book, originally written in 1982, called Fight, Flight, Fraud, which are interesting title for a book that's about the story of taxation, and it's by Charles Adams. And he came out with a a follow-up book many years later. I've got that one as well. I actually had this weird idea that I could just read these books and give you a summary of them. (laughs) Can't even do a half a chapter justice in a half an hour. So what, uh, now this was basically, you can't do a a history of taxation without, of course, looking at at the Roman history. And if you're confused about this, as I was, uh, you've got good reason to be, because Rome is not just one story. It's many, many, many stories. And remember, we're talking about an empire. Lasted lasted 1,000 years. So there had to be some good, and there had to be some bad to it. And now this is from, from Charles Adams' book. I'm going to be basically quoting, but not necessarily in the order he wrote it, because I couldn't obviously just read the whole chapter to you. So I'm trying to put this together as succinctly as I can. And what he's done, he's written here and he says, Roman taxation was not always bad. All kinds of taxes, and understand that, as well as no taxes, marked the Roman period. The thousand years of Roman civilization are divided by historians into equal halves. That's an easy easy thing to remember, too, two halves. The first period is called the Republic, when the Roman Senate was in command. And that ended about 30 BC, a significant year, with the triumph of Caesar Augustus, the first emperor. And that's when the empire basically started. And the empire, the second part, ended with the sack of Rome by the vandals in AD and basically, in order to study taxation, uh, what historians do with uh, with um, the Roman Empire is they divide it into four sections. And there's the early republic, which is considered the citizens' war tax era, which in Canada, Canada's term, I guess, would have been 1917. Uh, and then there's the republican chaos, where the publicani drive the republic to ruin. And then there's a third part, uh, Augustus, master tax strategist about how tax reform brings peace for 200 years, and the fourth is the empire in tax bondage, Diocletian's new order, the road to the fall. Now, today I'm only going to deal with the first and with the end afterwards, uh, after the next break, because um, really you can see the chain of connection very easily. And um, Charles Adams writes that the early Roman Republic required little taxation because, now get this, it operated with free labor. The army was a citizen's army composed of property owners who served for one year without pay. They even provided their own uniforms and equipment. This patriotic spirit produced a marvelous fighting force which defeated all who opposed it and capitulated Rome into the center of the civilized world. This spirit of volunteer, free public service inspired all government offices. Even the magistrates served the city without pay. (laughs) Can you imagine such a thing? It is difficult to overemphasize the importance of this ancient practice, writes Adams, especially in our age, when no one seems willing to lift a finger for the government without a fat paycheck. Early Rome did not operate tax-free. They were supplied by a number of indirect commercial taxes that continued throughout Roman history. The earliest taxes in Rome were customs duties on imports and exports. Almost all trade came by ship through seaports, Hence the name Portoria for these taxes. The Romans were, interesting word, pragmatic about taxation, which explains why they had all different kinds. As the Romans acquired new colonies, they generally maintained the existing tax systems that were already in place. And to give you an idea of what rates of taxes were charged back then, well, in Spain, customs duty was 2%. In Sicily, Africa, and Albania, the rate was 5%. Remember the good old days, 2%, 5%? And, uh, of course, now this is an important point. You see, he points out how ancient civilization ran on human power more than horsepower, So the moral issue was never much of a problem. And, you know, being pragmatic, that's a given. Because the economic bond of the slave was recognized by both the Jews and the early Christians. Slaves, like tribute, were part of the spoils of war. And taxes touched every facet of slavery. This is what's how the world started. Most slaves were sold at auctions, which incurred a 2% to 5% sales tax. When slaves arrived in port, there was a customs tax. When the slave was freed, there was a 5% tax on his value. Slaves were given a reduced rate for poll taxes, similar to the U.S. Constitution, which valued a slave for direct taxation at three-fifths of a free man. So I guess if you had two slaves, they outnumbered a free man. I don't know how that would work. But... To give the reader some idea of the size of the slave trade, now this is just amazing to me. The free port of Delos off the coast of Greece could handle as many as 10,000 slaves at one time. The great commercial facilities on the Isle of Rhodes could handle more. Taxes on slavery were a major source of revenue for all governments. Pirates were the chief slave traders during during times of peace. And the crew of any vessel seized by pirates was a regular part of the cargo. The task of proving one's right for freedom was extremely difficult once a person was caught up in the channels of slavery. Private tax collectors were also slave traders. The king of an Eastern Roman province complained to the Senate that he was unable to provide men for the legions because Roman tax farmers had taken his surplus male subjects and sold them. This story is often cited to prove that Roman taxmen operated a vast kidnapping for slavery operation in the provinces. But, writes Charles Adams, this may not be a correct interpretation of the records. The king probably pledged his surplus male subjects to secure a loan to pay his taxes. If the loan was unpaid because of a bad harvest, the tax farmers foreclosed on their collateral like any efficient banker. Sound a little familiar? The war tax was a wealth tax assessed from a census taken every five years. It was the duty of every citizen to come forth and make a declaration of his wealth. There were penalties for fraud or failure to make a declaration, as with our modern income taxes. The war tax was similar to the Greek ice uh, um, ice fora, except that the Greeks exempted the poor, but not foreigners. The Romans exempted foreigners, but not the poor. Interesting, I remember Ontario being like that. Um, We would, Sunday shopping laws. If you were a foreigner, you could go shopping on Sunday, but not not if you were a Canadian, (laughs) our own government. But um, by the middle of the 2nd century BC, the war tax was abolished, and thereafter, for 400 years, Roman citizens living in Rome were immune from direct taxation. Historical records about the war tax were all written at least 100 years after its abolition. Roman writers expressed contempt for the tax. Cicero, in Duties 2, 2172, wrote, Quote, When constant wars made the Roman treasury run short, our forefathers often used to levy a property tax. Every effort must be made to prevent a repetition of this, and all possible precaution must be taken to ensure that such a step will never be needed. But if any government should find itself under the necessity of levying tax on property, the utmost care has to be devoted to making it clear to the entire population that this simply has to be done because no alternative exists short of a complete national collapse, end quote. Now, uh, Adams adds, regardless of what Cicero said, the war tax was abolished because the provinces could now support the legions. Rome became a thriving commercial center and taxes on commerce escalated. So, basically, you see that the, the whole commerce, it's, that's what drives it. If you've got a good economy uh, and everyone's getting what they want and everyone's happy and you've got a freer economy, then you almost don't need taxes. But, um... One thing, you know, there's a bias on the part of the the author, Charles Adams, that that I thought slightly defied the evidence he was presenting. You know, after he describes the spirit of volunteer-free public service on the part of property owners, for a one-year service, by the way, which would be quite short by many standards, given that, that the rest of your life you wouldn't have to be in fear of conscription or even taxes, he wrote this. He says, quote, The ideal way to reduce heavy taxation is to instill in all citizens a spirit of unselfish service for the public good. It is not necessary to curtail public programs and services. What is necessary is the curtailment of the spirit of gain and profit that infects public servants and contractors. Well, with respect to public servants and contractors, I can understand it, but the rest of it doesn't make any sense. seems to me that the motivation behind this successful state of affairs in in early Rome was quite selfish and rational Uh, I mean volunteer public service in a legitimate function of government by the way the military not a social wealth redistribution system as opposed to conscription sounds like a pretty good deal to me I don't know if it truly was volunteer that would mean that no one would be actually punished by the state though I have to think that without uh, extenuating circumstances there were likely some sort of personal and social consequences that befell those who did not volunteer but the writer doesn't really elaborate on that point. But consider this. One year in the Roman army in exchange for no, no conscription, no taxes for the rest of your lifetime? Compare that to today's taxation rates in Canada, where in equivalent terms, we'd have to spend an average of 25 to 30 years in the Canadian army to, be, to, to make up for the taxes we pay. But... Um, Anyways, you can see the the problem there. We're going to take a quick break now, and when we come back after the break, we're going to be talking more about why did Rome fall, what brought it down, and Charles Adams has some interesting ideas on that. Back after this.
1: This is the Appian Way, the most famous road that leads to Rome as all roads lead to Rome. On this road march her conquering legions. Imperial Rome is the center of the empire, an undisputed master of the world. But with this power inevitably comes corruption. No man is sure of his life. The individual is at the mercy of the state. Murder replaces justice. Rulers of conquered nations surrender their helpless subjects to bondage. High and low alike become Roman slaves, Roman hostages. There is no escape from the whip and the sword. That any force on earth can shake the foundations of this pyramid of power and corruption, of human misery and slavery, seems inconceivable. But 30 years before this day, a miracle occurred. On a Roman cross in Judea, a man died to make men free. has a task ahead of him. Rebuild Rome and bring back Roman justice. I fear the glory that was Rome will never fully be reached again, Marcus. Babylon, Egypt, Greece, Rome, what follows? A more permanent world, I hope, or a more permanent faith. One is not possible without the other.
2: That's certainly a challenging assumption, and certainly something I talked about before on the show. Only on that time we were talking totally about religion, and I, I, I still hold to this day that all all the history of religion has to do with taxes and governments. If you look at the origins of all religions, Christianity, um, the Muslim religion, uh, J- the Jewish religion, they all have to do with histories of taxation and bondage of one group to another, and. Um, but as, as far as the Roman, you know, there's a Roman civilization and there's a Roman Empire. And I noticed there's a distinction made once historians start talking about that. And as uh, Charles Adams says in his book, he says, Roman civilization did not end with the fall of the Roman Empire. When the city of Rome declined as a unifying and dominating political force, the great civilization of these people made a new departure. Even today, Roman civilization is very much alive. We still think and act like Romans, in the way we govern ourselves, in the way we make war, in the way we collect taxes. It is absurd to suggest that Rome is gone like Egypt. Only the political power of the city is gone. All the rest merely underwent a metamorphosis. And that's exactly what that clip, by the way, those, those last couple of clips that you hear from the Roman Empire, they're from the movie Vadis*? And um, it's interesting how those themes were always in place. But as to, uh, now I I had referred to this before, of course, the uh, Scottish philosopher John McMurray in his book, Freedom in the Modern World, addressed this same thing, but from a moral point of view. And then you start realizing how Christianity, morality and taxes, and the whole concept of the Roman concept all got tied together. He explains it beautifully. And he says here, and this is from his book, Freedom in the Modern World, he writes this, John McMurray, quote, We are Romans at heart, even in our extremes of fascism and communism. Though, like the Romans, we are willing to use art and religion so long as they agree to play the part of menials to our ideal of social efficiency. The most important aspect of this dominance of the Roman element in our culture is to be found in our moral tradition, called a morality of will. And let me explain this, says McMurray. And he does so. Law is a fixed framework of rules for the organization of life, social or individual life. A man of strong will is a man who can lay down a plan of action for himself and stick to it. This capacity to act according to a fixed policy was the main characteristic of the Romans. It made them great organizers, great lawyers, great men of affairs. The prime necessity, if one is to live in this calculating fashion, is a capacity to subordinate one's emotional nature to reason. If we cannot control our emotions, then we can never be sure of carrying out our policy, of doing what we, not what we want to do at the moment, but what we had decided to do. That capacity to control our feelings by our reason is what we call will. Will is the capacity to act according to plan, whether at the moment we feel like it or not. This strain between the reason and the feelings is often referred to as the moral struggle. The important thing to notice, however, notes McMurray, that it is Roman and not either Greek or Christian, in spite of the fact uh, that that's what we mean on the whole when we talk of Christian morality. So he says that uh, when we use the word Christian morality, we're really talking about Roman morality. And then McMurray looks into the history of this development, in particular how Stoicism Um, became the official Roman philosophy, which is not my intention to explore today, as we've covered much of this in the context of religion on past shows. But today our focus is on taxation and the Roman influence behind uh, how and why we're taxed the way we are. And Isabel Patterson, in her God of the Machine, again on the significance of Rome, um, says, you know, she says, For 2,000 years, the example of Rome has been cited erroneously to the confusion of nations as a military empire. It was not. There has never been a military empire, nor can there ever be. It is impossible in the nature of things. When Augustus became emperor, his first move toward consolidating the Roman dominion was of reducing the size of the army. Subsequently, when Rome included within its boundaries most of Europe, the Near East, North Africa, the task was performed with less than 400,000 soldiers of whom half were auxiliaries, that is, regiments supplied by subject nations and and uh, officered by Romans. Comparisons with the numbers under arms in Europe during the recent world wars is proof enough that the Roman armies could have been pitifully inadequate to hold such a wide territory, even for six months by pure force. There were very few genuine popular uprisings under the Roman Empire. The ordinary man wished to live under Roman law. The victorious legions were a result and not a cause, says Patterson. And again, you see the power of free will is the driving force behind civilizations as opposed to empires. So, uh, you know, while we're still on that part of Roman civilization and uh, the state of Rome, of course, suffered a different fate. And he says, you know, it's been suggested, uh, says Charles Adams, that Rome fell because of depopulation. He goes through a whole pile of reasons that all sorts of people think. And he says, there really isn't one reason you know there's general causes moral and physical at work in every monarchy which elevate and maintain it or its downfall but here he goes on and he says well you know i've got another reason he says i think uh, to the list of all the causes of the demise of rome he says i would add one more subject and he adds tax evasion the city of rome fell he writes because it could not defend itself against the third-class military force there was sufficient wealth in the social order to have raised and sustained a strong military force But such force did not exist because the tax evaders had all the money. The problem began with Diocletian and his great social and economic reforms. These reforms produced a greatly enlarged military and civil bureaucracy for Rome. In the century that followed, Rome flourished, but after that, things got bad. Now, here's the really scary part. Quote, Throughout most of the 4th century, the bondage of Diocletian's tax system turned tax collectors into slave masters. Emperor Constantine's chief tutor, and by the way, Emperor Constantine was the architect of the Roman Catholic Church as it is structured today, and his chief tutor described how tax assessors summoned peasants to the town square and applied torture, and made children give evidence against their parents, uh, you know, uh, wives against their husbands, servants against their masters, they extorted by blows, exaggerated tax return, returns, which they then made even higher by placing children and old men on their tax rolls of small farmers. And besides his own tax burdens, the small independent farmer lived in fear of having his neighbor's taxes passed on to him because of a collective tax responsibility. If farmland were abandoned, taxmen transferred those lands to adjacent farmers along with the tax bill that went with them. And so, for the small farmer and owner uh, private ownership, became intolerable. The prevalence of crippling taxation prior to the fall of Rome has led many historians in all ages to suspect that Rome, like so many empires, taxed itself to death. Recently the tax theory, and this is fascinating, this is his closing, he says, Recently the tax theory of the fall of Rome has become unfashionable among many scholars, perhaps because of our own tolerance for heavy taxation. No one likes to think that we are writing our own obituary when we draft modern tax legislation. If our civilization is to be destroyed, we like to think it'll happen Hollywood-style, a cataclysmic event like an atomic war, an ecological blunder, that's all you have green, folks, or some other dramatic happening. Certainly not something so simple and dull as everyday taxation." Now, that's a taxing proposition to have to consider, wouldn't you say? at the end of our program. But our time's wrapping up now, and I think we've got to go because I really don't have time to get into another whole subject. So we'll see you again next week. Thanks to our guest, Kevin Godet and thank you to you for joining us today. See you next week.
0: Fade to color Color into black and white Under the Everything will
4: be uh, I was watching some TV today. Watching pro wrestling on TV. Oh, man alive. I cannot get enough of the pro wrestling. Do you love it? I cannot get enough of it. I love the wrestling. Not just the pro wrestling. I like all the wrestling. Like the Olympic style, the Greco-Roman wrestling. You know, the Greeks used to wrestle in the nude. Which they still would
0: if you let them. I'm just saying. That, uh, <laughs>